When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a current release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with... Keith Phipps. Genevieve Kosky. Scott Tobias. On the first half of this episode, we discussed Ocean's Eleven, Steven Soderbergh's star-studded 2001 hit about a crew of con artists and specialists who take three Las Vegas casinos for a $160 million payday and walk away with the money and the girl. Now we'll bring in Soderbergh's latest star-packed non-linear ensemble cast heist thriller, Logan Lucky, which operates along similar lines but in a very different setting. Logan Lucky stars Channing Tatum and Adam Driver as walking wounded brothers who are both a bit down on their luck, which is where the film gets its sardonic title. Driver's character, Clyde, lost an arm during his military service in Iraq. Tatum's character, Jimmy, permanently damaged his leg when he was a hometown football hero. More than that, he's lost his wife to a much more successful man, another link with Ocean's Eleven, and his work has taken him far away from their young daughter, who he dotes on. So without explaining his motivations, either to his crew or to the audience, Jimmy sets out to rob the Charlotte Motor Speedway with a crew of helpers, including American Honey's Riley Keough, Daniel Craig, and Brian Gleason and Jack Quaid. Those latter two in particular are playing laughable yokels, introduced while playing horseshoes with toilet seats at a county fair. The film treats Jimmy and Clyde with more respect, but this is still a far cry from the natty suits and slick banter of Ocean's Eleven. We'll talk about how two different Soderbergh caper movies set on two different sides of the country play out in similar ways after this break. You hear the words coming out your mouth. They have their own police force. I'm midway through my presentation. So you can just not interrupt me and let me get it out. How many times have I listened to that Logan family curse thing yours? Thank you. Now, as you very well know, Speedway's got a big problem on his hands right now. 40-year-old pipe bursting since the whole thing's built on landfills turning to mush, which causing all these sinkholes. That's right, the sinkholes in the infield. Now, they wanted to fix this thing up right, so what'd they do? What'd they do? They called a bunch of us and just worked on their minds. Because we know the work. Man, you do good work. We do good work. But you were just fired. I was let go for liability reasons involving insurance. Can you just get to the part of why you think you can do this? I know how they moved the money. Okay, so here's the thing. Soderbergh made this film as part of a, a sort of an experiment in different forms of production and distribution. He, The whole idea was funding production with foreign contributions and then funding his own distribution by selling the rights to, you know, streaming and into Netflix and VOD sites and so forth and so on. And it's not really paying off very well financially. Like the film hasn't done well at the box office, but also for me, I just didn't hear about this film much before it hit theaters. I didn't have much of a sense of it, which for me was great because I got to walk in and sit down without (laughs) having had every plot detail spoiled. But the entire time I was enjoying it, I was thinking if more people had more of a sense of what this is, it would be doing better because it's such a fun film. Yeah, I don't think the marketing paid off all that well for this one. I mean, we usually don't touch about marketing games and things like that, but it was, I knew a little bit more than you did. I'd, I'd edited some some pieces about it, but at the same time, I didn't have the greatest sense of what this film was like from the ads, and the ads were kind of, seemed like kind of late-breaking in, in many ways. I understand there's also sort of a plan to kind of target them 
around NASCAR areas and that maybe didn't work out so well. I don't know. It's a highly entertaining film and, and a commercial one filled with stars. I think with a little bit more of a push, more people would have gone to see it. The thing is, though, people will see it. I think they'll catch up with this movie mm-hmm. eventually, and I think they'll be delighted by it. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And now that you're talking about Soderbergh experimenting in distribution strategies and financing the film and all this other business, it connects the film even more to the Soderbergh film that it recalls the most for me, which is Bubble. Mm. <laughs> uh, because what was Bubble if not Soderbergh getting some money to make a movie, a digital movie, through Mark Cuban's company and doing whatever the heck he wanted with, <laughs> with that money. Uh, and also making a movie about people who are poor. But Bubble's set in small town Ohio. And uh, this is uh, not terribly far over in West Virginia and in a town that's, I think, quite similar in, in, in some ways to the town uh, that Bubble is set in. And class and, and money play a huge role in Logan Lucky. So let's erase the first half of this episode and make it about Bubble. bubble. <laughs> yeah, our most popular episode about Bubble. You know, this is part of his shtick as a filmmaker. I mean, he is interested in distribution models and in digital filmmaking and a lot of these wonkier things. Um, those those are part of his movies, too. Yeah, there's a little bit of a Tucker and the man in his dream quality to this, where he, maybe he made a better vehicle but didn't have the force behind it. You know, it was beaten at the box office by the hitman's bodyguard, which I haven't seen yet. Maybe it's a better movie than yeah. this, but... It's a know. typical gas-guzzling Hollywood yeah. picture. <laughs> I'd heard a fair bit about this movie going into it, but a lot of it was around the fact that it's, you know, the film Steven Soderbergh came out of retirement for, which is silly on several levels. But, you know, I was listening to an interview with him about why he came out of retirement to do this. And he was talking about how he had in his head kind of conflated the process of getting a movie made with directing and his experience working on the Nick in television kind of reminded him that he really enjoys directing and (laughs) that that's not what he wanted to retire from. It's so it seems like this tendency of his to like try and figure out a way to get films made outside of the, the typical system Mm -hmm. is part of that frustration i guess that he felt that drove him out of the business for a brief period of time yeah it's i mean it's fascinating to to think about how he works too uh, because we just again we're just talking about oceans 11 in this in this run that he had in the late 90s and and early aughts when he was you know sort of a hollywood golden boy and and was making hit after hit after hit and And bubble was the end of that right well i just think he gets restless and then he he wants to do something full frontal yeah. yeah but i mean that was him just that's again both of those movies full frontal and bubble were a product of his curiosity about the way film was changing you know and shifting to digital and what could be done with digital cameras and and uh and with different forms of distribution which bubble was day and date which was which is something that was unheard of at the time mm-hmm. so and i think soderbergh wants to be on the on the cutting edge of that i mean he's, he's always a fascinating contrast with christopher nolan i know they're they're chummy they're Absolutely the opposite, where, where Nolan is clinging very much to old ways of doing things, to celluloid and the, to traditional distribution models, and, and Soderbergh always is very restless and, and kind of chasing after uh, the new. Well, I can't help but wonder if the fact that he is experimenting with different forms of funding and distribution and marketing here is the reason he chose to make what is for him. I mean, it, this is very much a throwback to Ocean's Eleven. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's set within these blue collar workers instead of a boxing match in a Vegas casino. It's uh, essentially a NASCAR race in North Carolina, and it's people, as you say, who need the money rather than people who eh, wouldn't mind having thirteen million dollars to throw around. The people involved in this heist are not necessarily career criminals. But that said, the mechanics of it, the bones of it are so similar. And I wonder if he thought he was going with a safer model, if he was going with something that would be very popular and populist and would throw back to like one of his his best known and most mainstream popular films. And thus it was a safe bet to do this experiment with this film. I mean, I think there's certainly room to wonder that. And uh, Logan Lucky does explicitly call out Ocean's Eleven in uh. the characterization of the heist as Ocean's Seven Eleven mm-hmm. by because they found the truck behind the Seven Eleven. But I don't think Soderbergh would ever say that. But I don't think any any director would you know want to say that they were going back to what they know works. But 
I think you can definitely apply that reading to it because the similarities are so so very great. Although the question of who wrote this movie does mm-hmm. complicate that somewhat because uh, Rebecca Blunt, the credited writer, does <laughs> not uh, appear to exist. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> yeah, so there's there's some question of whether it is Soderbergh's wife, Jules Asner. Jules Asner or Soderbergh himself. Or some combination of all of the above. Or, or John Henson, former host of Talk Soup, is another name I've Really? Heard. Yeah, they've wanted to work on something together for a while. I guess they know each other through Jules Asner. Or why something? would John Henson not want his name on the movie, I, though? But, yeah. why, well, why would anybody not want their name on the yeah. movie? I mean, I assume with Soderbergh having a name under which he does cinematography and a name under which he does editing, some of that comes down to contractual requirements and some of it comes down to especially when he's editing somebody else's movie or being a cinematographer on somebody else's movie, just maybe not wanting the distraction of his name on those films. But given that he's directing this movie, I mean, writer-directors are a very common thing. Why wouldn't he want his wife's name on it? Why wouldn't his wife want her name on it? Like, whoever is behind this, it just feels like a bigger mystery than it probably actually is. Maybe there'll be a big reveal at the end where it turns (laughs) out that... There's there's a twist coming that will uh, be in the third act of uh, Soderbergh's career. We'll get it. Did you guys, did you find yourself, I mean, apart from the obviousness of knowing we were going to do this podcast, did you find yourself thinking about Ocean's Eleven during this movie, given the mechanical similarities? On the one hand, it's hard not to. On the other hand, I think stylistically, they're they're quite different. Mm-hmm. This is a much more low-key film. This feels much more like sort of a 70s kind of backwoods kind of, uh, you know, action comedy in, in some ways, in a way. I, Slick I really... isn't the first word that comes to mind. No, you know? no, no. I mean, it's while still being like a very well-directed and a movie that moves really well, and mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't have that sheen, I think. Yeah, it's got a different kind of quality to it. Yeah. I mean, am I right in thinking that that's partially because Ocean's Eleven has comedic elements but is primarily a thriller whereas this has thriller elements but is more of a comedy oh you can say that i think also this question of the setting yeah that's the the important i think that's the really important motivating factor that i mean this is definitely a setting that he cares quite a bit about evoking evoking the reality of living paycheck to paycheck and being fired for dubious reasons and you know having to deal with a, a divorce and it's just, there's a lot of realness here that, that isn't present in Ocean's Eleven. And it's centered on a family dynamic and you know I mean Ocean's Eleven is a group of professionals who come together to do a job and this is for the most I mean the the Logan family and they bring in a, a couple ringers one of whom <laughs> is excellent and I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment but um, I almost felt like Logan Lucky was less of a comedy than Ocean's Eleven is just because I feel like it has a little more emotional resonance to what is happening you know i mean there's there's certainly some slapsticky elements i'm thinking of seth mcfarland's character who could have not been in this movie and i would not be upset about it but that's pretty much the only element of this movie i feel that way about you mean the english actor seth mcfarland yeah <laughs> I mean, th- that that is that is a connection that between these connection. two movies that, that, and... that accent. yeah can we can we yeah. just like can we replace all of the don Cheadle worst accent ever complaints <laughs> with seth mcfarland just kind of bump that out i yeah. thought it was i thought he did a great job just to kind of go back to the question of like whether this movie actually you know reminded me of oceans 11 while i was watching it the moment that it really did is toward the end when you rewind and mm-hmm. you see what really happened in the heist and you're, it's revealed to you what you missed uh, or what was being kept from you. So, so satisfying. God, it's yeah. so great. Though I will say that the difference between that one and, and Ocean's Eleven is Ocean's Eleven has the advantage of all that stuff was in plain sight if you were paying attention or if you could just use your imagination a little bit. I think there's a little more cheating going on in Logan Lucky in terms of what's being revealed, but still exciting to watch it unfold uh, the way the way it does and be fooled i mean there's nothing more fun as a audience member than than a really good twist that just kind of a real good fooling yeah just (laughs) just upends you you know like there was an episode like that of of billions of all things like last season just like the penultimate episode was like layered in that way to where like you just thought you had a handle on it and it pulls the rug out from under you and doesn't cheat doing it that's so hard to do and it's so so satisfying when it when it's done right and i think it's done right here and in oceans 11 
There are a lot of connections that we want to get to, but but before we move on to that, we should talk about just the cast of Logan Lucky in general. I'm I'm looking at the growing grin on uh, Genevieve's face, and I know how much she wants to talk about Daniel Craig here. Oh, no, I was actually thinking of Channing Tatum. (laughs) Charming Potato. Charming Potato, who is just such a favorite. I'm, I'm always, always happy to watch him on screen, and I'm glad that Soderbergh seems to have taken a liking to him but no i mean i alluded to the daniel craig performance which is i think the standout in this i mean channing tatum is definitely i don't want to say he's he's a background he's obviously like the engine that makes the movie go but he does kind of take a back seat to the action for a big chunk of this movie he's he's the least colorful character yes um probably the most soulful as well yes that's a very nice way to put it keith but yeah, I mean, Daniel Craig's character here is... You mean Joe Bang? Joe Bang. I, I think it's interesting that our explosives artist here is Joe Bang and our explosives artist in Ocean Eleven is Banger. Ba- no, Basher. Basher? Is it Basher? Yeah. Yeah. They're both onomatopoeic names. I, well, it's, <laughs> seriously, it's like you can't, you can't even get a job on a heist as an explosives <laughs> artist without some explosive name. Like, what the heck? In terms of the cast, I, I thought on paper, you wouldn't necessarily think Channing Tatum... And Adam Driver and Riley Keough could play siblings, but it really works in the film. They have a really, you believe them, they have a nice relationship that feels like it's been uh, developed over many years. Yeah, and Riley Keough is great in this movie, mm-hmm. too. Like, she's also quickly becoming a favorite. It's endlessly distracting to me how much she looks like a slightly younger Kristen Stewart. Oh, it's endlessly really? distracting to me how much oh, she looks like, like Elvis. Elvis. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's endlessly distracting to me how much Kristen Stewart looks like Elvis. <laughs> but, but Tasha, I believe you're a big fan of, of Joe Bang. Okay, so Soderbergh basically said that he got Craig to do the movie by saying, you know, you can just you can show up and do what you want. Like, have fun with it. You don't have to do press for it. I don't care how you dress. I don't care how you look. I just like I want you to show up and enjoy it which seems like the kind of thing that a director would say and then get you on the set and have a whole bunch of direction for you. But I really believe it here from from Craig's performance. Craig's accent here like just completely <laughs> cracks me up. His entire performance just kind of says, you know, hey, man, I'm here and I'm having fun in like just a really we- weird but real way. It's kind of the last thing you expect from Daniel Craig. Oh, I, I know. I mean, mm-hmm. this is not anything I've ever seen Daniel Craig do before and maybe not, <laughs> never will again. Again, but I'm, I'm grateful for this movie in which he gets to bring out the redneck weirdness that's in Daniel Craig all along. <laughs> you know, I, I, now that I think about it, that sort of thing happened with Pierce Brosnan too. Post Bond, Pierce Brosnan suddenly became a much more interesting actor mm. just because he was was kind of unshackled from that, or could do some sort of long in the tooth version of, of of a Bond character. He could just you know distance himself from that role, like the Matador, uh, Taylor Panama. Those totally. are, those are really good yeah, performances yeah. from Pierce became, Brosnan. Yeah. But, but that but those were like twists on the Bond persona. This is Daniel Craig doing. Sure. I don't yeah, know what something he's completely doing. different. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's doing whatever he wants. Yeah, that character presents is someone who you know, is kind of the career criminal who they come to for for help. But then he's like just such a a weirdo and like he is capable, but he's capable in such an offbeat, weird way that it just like totally throws off your expectations of not only who Daniel Craig is, but but like what that character, what you expect of that character. You know who he reminds me of in a really weird way is uh, William Fickner in Go, specifically. (laughs) William Fickner plays all of these like intense, angry, uh, like slick characters. And in Go, he has a little bit of that. And then as soon as he starts his multi-level marketing spiel, he just kind of drops into this, you know, sad puppet man who's like, why don't you like my products? And there's just that, that, that weird sense of like sloppy, needy vulnerability that does not actually counterindict in any way like the hardness of the, of the person in the character. And he, I mean, he also reminds me a little bit, I guess, of, of the limey. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there is that sense of kind of like banked violence that could come up at any time. There is an element of that character that seems like he could be dangerous and that danger never really materializes. Yeah, especially towards the end, there's a sense that that could come across, come apart badly. Yeah. And it's kind of the dog that didn't bark. The other dog that doesn't bark in this film that I was really pleased with was, so Channing Tatum's ex, played by Katie Holmes, is married to a much richer man who's a car dealer, Mm -hmm. uh, played by David Denham. And he doesn't go Andy Garcia. Like there's mm-hmm. there's never a sense that like he is an evil man who needs to be conquered. Yeah. And Tatum doesn't like work to win her back. Like that relationship is over. 
And her relationship with Denim's character seems reasonably functional. He is in some ways kind of a kind of a twit. And there's like very light twitting of him in the movie. Mm -hmm. But it's not about getting her back. And it's not about breaking him down. And it's not about proving that he's an ass. He's, he's just like he's the next part of her life. Well, and it transfers that dynamic onto their daughter, Sadie, who is the motivation for what, what Jimmy does. And uh, what, what, what do we all think of her uh, beauty pageant performance? Well, it's, it's, it's touching, <laughs> but it's not, it's not good. No. She won, though. It, wouldn't, it would not win. win in that environment of the, the environment of the shellacked hair. But I, I might have grown up on John denver and i might find john denver songs touching and i might have cried in the theater. what a year for john denver oh i know well, this right? and this and any song in uh ocha that apparently was so i think i think in kingsman as well too oh boy yeah. Can't do it. <laughs> um, uh, it also, I mean, it reminded me a fair bit of the use of uh, Country Roads in Studio Ghibli's, uh, I think it's Whisper of the Heart. That song comes over and up over and over and like a young girl singing it and other people joining in becomes a, a big emotional beat. It's an alien covenant, too. It is a really big year for John Denver oh, in the gosh, movies. I'd completely forgotten <laughs> about that already. To speak to a point Genevieve made quite a while ago, Ocean's Eleven does not have that kind of emotion that you, that you experience at that recital. So, so it has a little bit of soul to it. What did you think of it, Genevieve? Since you brought it up, no, I mean, I, I actually just this is an anecdote that really doesn't have anything to do with the scene itself, which was re- like really good and emotional. But the soundtrack for this movie that is on Spotify does not include the John Denver Country Roads. It includes the Farrah McKenzie <laughs> version oh. of Country Roads. And my boyfriend, who was very eager to listen to the soundtrack of this movie, kept playing that version and driving me absolutely <laughs> insane. Oh boy! <laughs> so that is why it is in my head but no i think the the scene itself is is great and i actually do like that her performance is so unpolished and so very childlike and yet still connects to the audience because they're in west virginia and this is a song that means something more to them than it means to the rest of us so. it was of, it was oh, nicely set up you think about that the choice that was being made too i mean perhaps there was a song that she had in mind, umbrella, perhaps, but I, yeah. I, that that fit her vocal register a little bit better, yeah. or that was more suitable to her. But she made this made this choice to you'd think to throw the beauty patch by singing the song, but she wins it. Uh, There's also that moment where it becomes clear that she's she's calling the audible and her Katie Holmes mother is briefly horrified, but there's no backlash from it. You know, there's no, like, how dare you? And part of that is because she won. But I don't know. There's just, there's a, a good naturedness, I guess, to the people in this film. And the way it ends, I think, speaks very strongly to that as well. There are little moments in this film, like one of the ones that stands out to me more than anything else is after the heist, there's just this really brief montage of everybody sleeping, just all of the characters sacked out on on couches and beds and wherever, because they're all tuckered out because they had a long, hard heist. And it's just, it's the, it's the simplest, quietest, sweetest thing. But it just it really speaks to how Sutterberg thinks of these characters. Like they look like a bunch of little kids that have had a really tough play date and they're all taking their afternoon nap. I mean, I could use a brief nap. Oh, if you want to take a brief nap, you can go right ahead. We'll take a short break and we'll be back to talk about the connections between Ocean's Eleven and Logan Lucky. The only guy knows it. Anything about blowing up real bank vaults is Joe Bang. Joe Bang? That's a legend right there. You know where he is. No, I know where he is. We can't do it without him. This is a surprise. What you say there, Joe Bang? Ain't seen you in a while. How goes it? Well, I'm sitting on this side of the table wearing a onesie. How do you think it's going? Well, you look good. Real good. Fit. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things that they have in common. And boy, howdy, these movies have a lot of things in common. This one isn't even on the list, but I kind of want to start with humor. 
I think it's really interesting that as similar as these two films are structurally and conceptually and in terms of the ensemble and in terms of a lot of the other things we're going to talk about, the humor in Ocean's Eleven is just is so snappy. It's so like 60s Hollywood, like hot jazz, inflected, bang, 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 bang. And the humor in Logan Lucky is just weird. I mean, yeah. my, my favorite bit of humor in Logan Lucky is like a five-minute riff on how slow Jar Jar Martin <laughs> yes. writes. That was a hit in the theater when I saw it. What's so great about that is like, like, oh, that's a clever reference. Like, oh, they're going to keep going with this <laughs> yeah. and getting to, you know, layer upon layer of detail about this. Yeah, yeah that, was, that was so great. They leaned into it so hard. <laughs> I mean, I think the, the humor in Ocean's Eleven is, it's banter. It's all about how characters are vibing off of each other comedically or otherwise. And Logan Lucky, it's a lot more gay based or like single character based like Joe Bang has a lot of lines that are just him not necessarily something that someone is feeding him or that he is responding to so it's just like kind of a different type of of humor but I think like they are I wouldn't say one is more funny than the other necessarily although his two brothers uh, played by Jack Quaid and Brian Gleason are kind of exactly yes. the same characters as Casey Affleck and uh, Scott Kahn. They're, they're, they're filthier, though. Oh, they are filthier and they're mulletier, but but they do the kind of the same like mm-hmm. brother sniping at each other. They have kind and, of the same function in the story. And they're relatives of, of more famous actors as well. Yeah. <laughs> but they do have one of my favorite bits of, of Logan Lucky where where they need a moral reason to <laughs> to pull it off. And it, they clearly they're they so clearly just like want to be in on this heist, but they, they need to pay lip service to having a, a moral reason to it, which I think is a really fun tweak of the idea that we were kind of talking about with Ocean's Eleven and, and here too, like there being a motive beyond just the money. And we get the same thing in Ocean's Eleven when they present uh, Elliot Gould with the whole, it's not about me and my ex-wife and wanting to impress her and wanting to show up the the guy who took her. It's about you. It's about you and how you were wronged in the hotel. There's a there's a moral reason we're doing this for you. Yeah. It's the exact same dynamic. Totally, yeah. And in terms of the humor, I, I, I kind of like how the film really steered into the curve when it comes to the accents. <laughs> like, I, it, I was actually reminded a little bit of raising Arizona in that respect. It's just like, okay, we're gonna, we're not gonna go for verisimilitude here. We're going to, as you said, I didn't know this backstory about Daniel Craig just being allowed to do whatever. Uh, I mean, Seth MacFarlane was maybe, if we're gonna defend his performance, <laughs> maybe he was allowed to do whatever too. It was not really about nailing the local dialect dead on. It was just let's just go whole hog into the into kind of redneck comedy and, and uh, I think it works really well for the film. Is that what Hilary Swank was doing? Yeah, I would <laughs> love to know what Hilary Swank was doing. <laughs> She does now that you now that you mention it, like that weird sort of way over exaggerated twang is reminiscent of Holly Hunter in uh, Raising Arizona. Yeah, see, <laughs> I meant to do that. It's the Pee Wee Herman defense. <laughs> <laughs> well, can we talk about how both of these films kind of follow a similar progression in terms of explaining the mechanics of a heist part way, and then carrying out the mechanics, and then keeping secrets from the audience? Like, both of them kind of have the same dual-level protagonist motivation thing. Both of them have a, ha-ha, but here's what you missed. Scott, you talked about that earlier in terms of how Logan Lucky is, is maybe cheating a little more. But is there anything more to say about kind of structurally how these two films hit the same beat? Well, I think the fact that, like, both heists take place literally underneath or in the bowels of a giant, you know, amusement complex. Both of these settings are like adults theme parks, basically, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love that Logan Lucky just functions as a, a more like lo-fi version of, of everything that, that happens in Ocean's Eleven. I, I love the use of pneumatic tubes. Like <laughs> That is, talk about lo-fi. Like, but pneumatic tubes are, are still used yeah. in theme parks in particular, you know. It's, it's so a, they, do they really have, I mean, that I, I kept waiting for the fans to go in that room and for money to blow everywhere and for somebody on a game show to be stuck inside to grab money out of the air like seeing all of that money just dumped into a big crumply cash heap mm-hmm. like that for me was one of the things in the movie that was just like really but i i, I like it. It, it again like paired with oceans 11 where you, where your money is just nice neat blocks easily uh, transportable and yeah. it fits nicely into bags and just like having to 
grab money out of the air and just all plastic bags, just yeah, hefty yeah, bags. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it just like underlines the fact that like these are not career criminals. Like the you know for for the most part these people have not done anything even remotely like this before. It's well, so <laughs> clever though. That's a, maybe yeah. something that's maybe it stretches a little bit credulity in the sense that like if they are not professionals, they have really come up with a very very clever scheme here, right? The or other contrast. I mean, it's is- really just kind of a. Smash glorified and smash and grab it, with a it's, vacuum it's, a yeah. giant vacuum cleaner. yeah i mean it's born out of this like very specific knowledge that jimmy has from his job or his former job but outside the pneumatic tubes the thinking behind it isn't that innovative the other contrast is that in in oceans 11 they're shooting for the busiest night of the year <laughs> and the biggest event when the most money's going to flow and, and and this one they they're going for like the quietest weekend event they could yeah, find yeah like that's the complication <laughs> yeah. in, in oceans 11 the the complication is the the thing with the power them fixing what basher had planned to exploit to make the power go out and so they have to go get the pinch but like the complication in Logan Lucky is that we have to move it up from the least busy day of the year to the most busy or to the busiest day of the year. And it's just like a great little inversion of the thinking behind the Ocean's Eleven. Okay, heist. Keith, I just I want you I want to thank you for bringing that up because that finally made what happens to the money at the end make sense to me. Mm. But mm. They ended up with more money than they planned mm. and they behave according to that. And I just I thought that that was a really odd detail. I, I thought I could see what he was going for. But you bringing that up puts it in, in better perspective. It just they weren't planning <laughs> on that take. And yeah. that, that becomes really interesting. And it, it kind of plays into one of the other connections I wanted to bring up, which is just the whole idea. I mean, heist movies are essentially about gentleman thieves, about thieves where you want them to get away with the money. You want them to be successful in whatever heist they're doing because the mechanics are interesting and you you want to see them work. Nobody wants a heist movie where like two moves into the chess game, they blow it and all go to jail. Mm-hmm. But in both of these movies, I feel like there's, there's an extra push toward these people have very thin motivations. The, I guess in Logan Lucky, the kind of like hidden motivation of like, I want to move closer to my daughter, which isn't really articulated, but it's just kind of like coursing under the film is at least sympathetic. In Ocean's Eleven, it's just a whole bunch of people that want money. And in Logan Lucky, most of them are just people who want money. And at the same time, just the mechanics of these movies, I think in both cases, makes you want them to succeed because that's just it's assumed that that's what you're going to want. Well, they're just so charming in Ocean's mm-hmm. Eleven. How could you how could you not give them all your money? <laughs> <laughs> and, and and Logan Lucky, yeah, 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 you root for the underdog. It's sort of the natural inclination in, in, in a movie, especially in a movie that's geared like this to make you want to root for the underdog. I just want to ask a general question. Mm-hmm. Salute. Have we ever? You, you realize that we do this on the podcast all the time, all the time and, and people can't. and people don't know don't because know. they can't see us saluting. I think we've established that we salute whenever someone <laughs> says general, general or major. major. It's a major part of the podcast. Major, major part of the podcast. Uh, so, has there ever been a heist film in which we haven't rooted for the thieves? Don't we always want the thieves to be successful? Die Hard. Yeah, that's pretty sure. Yeah, 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 sure. That's pretty good. <laughs> This is this is your chance, next pitch for pod listeners. This is where you write in and tell yeah. us about the five million other movies involving evil heists. I would say it's a more standard feature of the heist film of the heist genre of which taking yeah. a poem one two three of which of which Die Hard is not, or taking a poem one two three no? is not. Okay. They're both action pictures, oh. uh, but the heist film. I think you're. I think you want you're when in, it, on, when you're you're in w- it for the artistry yeah. of the people trying to pull it off. Well, I think it's also interesting that both of these movies are the settings of both of these movies are places where like money is baked into the motivations of that place like the way that Danny Ocean sells the the idea to Brad Pitt's characters with, like with the speech that because the house always wins you mm. know and we are putting one over on like guys who who always beat us and there's definitely that is what is happening in Logan Lucky too like there is an element of getting back at the system that has left Jimmy just in, in dire straits is there though because I mean the Speedway isn't screwing him over like his boss doesn't even mean to screw him over. He's the victim 
of like a medical establishment quirk that says he shouldn't be on the job with a pre-existing condition. Like that's not the Speedway's fault. There isn't even a villain in this film. There isn't anybody that they're actively working against. There isn't some greed head that's sitting up in the in the box going, "Waha, you know, buy pay ten dollars for another beer, you plebeians who they're they're screwing over." Who are they? The underdog well, against the enemy is the bad luck, really. I mean, and, and yeah. bad luck. I think it's it works both specific to the, the to the Logans in, in this film, but also to anyone who, by what they're born into, doesn't have the same opportunities as everybody else. I think I think there's not a specific villain, but I, I think kind of fighting against the the fate that's been handed to you is is what uh, they're up against. I like that. And isn't that the biggest villain of all? No, the, the biggest villain of all is the is the shark in Jaws. <laughs> they, they dealt with that too. King Kong, he's not really a villain. He's pretty big too. <laughs> also, that giant squid that King Kong fights, but he pretty much tears it up and eats it. And so, so many big villains. Oh, you're so literal minded. Uh, what else uh, do we? Uh, Keith, think... you'd suggested talking about the music in these two movies. I did. Uh, I mean, Dave Holmes is the score in both of them, and it's sort of you know funky, cool Dave Holmes music. You know, outfitted by uh, uh, setting appropriate uh, accompanying songs. I think I think that they're very different soundtracks, but I think they're both kind of working in kind of the same way. Yeah, in Ocean's Eleven particularly, I, I barely registered the the familiar songs compared to that soundtrack and just kind of the way it wheedles in there and, and adds like a little snare to everything that's going on, just like a little whisper of, of suggestive jazz. In Love and Lucky, I, I registered the diegetic songs a lot more and the songs that are just sort of not necessarily part of the environment but are, are telling the story. It felt very different to me. You know, it felt like the difference between you're in an environment where people listen to music all the time versus you're in an environment where people live their music all the time. I can see that. So you didn't register a little less conversation? Yeah. Well, yeah, I was just going to point out that, like, both of these films, I think, have, like, a centerpiece song in Mm -hmm. the soundtrack that is, like, very tied to the setting of of the film. Like, a little less conversation is just so Vegas. And then we already talked about Country Roads and and Logan Lucky. And just both of those songs, I think, really signify where these movies are taking place. I registered a little more conversation, but it was because at at that moment, the characters are no longer on screen. It's actually like a joke because the introductions to the characters have been so quick and efficient. And then you have Ellis coming in and saying, yeah, but let's get let's get done with that. Let's get Mm -hmm. on to the heist. As the camera flies over Vegas, it's like even that was too much information. We know what you really want. We, we want to see these cool characters steal something. That song, uh, Keith would probably know better than I do. It wouldn't be among the first songs you thought you'd think of with, with no. about Elvis. It was just, it was, you know, I think Ocean's Eleven got to define it, itself through that song in a way that it wouldn't if it played a more familiar uh, Elvis. If, I, if I'm recalling correctly, it's sort of the late 60s, pre-68 comeback period when he's actually making good music again, but people weren't really paying that much attention. It was from the 1968 film Live a Little, Love a Little. Hmm. Keith Phipps. Whatever Keith says, if I recall, he's, he's right. <laughs> now, speaking of a little less conversation and a little more action, we should probably action our way out of this discussion. <laughs> so it's been going on for a long time. Queen of segues, Tasha Robinson. <laughs> Ocean's Eleven is available on DVD and Blu-ray. It's available for digital rental on Amazon. Amazon and other sources. Logan Lucky is in theaters right now. It is not doing well, so catch it while you can. Speaking of another heist movie, uh, we'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items that we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what in the film world has been good for you lately? I'm going to recommend a movie called Ingrid Goes West, which I enjoyed quite a bit. It is a dark comedy uh, that's really more of an addiction narrative, but it's dressed up in a story about a woman who is obsessed with Instagram and in particular, aspirational Instagram figures who uh, kind of make their their living being perfect and uh, interesting on Instagram. Um, it stars Aubrey Plaza as the titular Ingrid, who is broken when the film starts and 
does not really get any better over the course of the film. Like when I say this is a dark addiction narrative, like it is that um, this movie made me profoundly uncomfortable <laughs> watching it. But um, and I came away from it, not sure how I felt about it, particularly the ending for a couple days. But it's one of those that like the more I thought about it, the more I thought it was saying something kind of profound <laughs> with the ending that is not at all happy or a a resolution in any way (laughs) so if you go into that knowing that you are like probably not going to be satisfied by the ending but perhaps be intrigued by it i think it's really worthwhile for aubrey plaza's performance in particular the movie around her is definitely flawed in in certain ways but she is just this i don't even want to call her a bright spot just like a pitch black spot (laughs) in in the middle of it it actually reminded me a little bit of a movie i reviewed uh, at the dissolve called life after beth where she played a a zombie girlfriend and she was also just the best thing about that movie for her willingness to just go all in and be weird and make you uncomfortable and uh, she has a very interesting comedic presence that I think this movie serves well. It also stars Elizabeth Olsen as the figure that uh, Ingrid becomes obsessed with and also uh, O'Shea Jackson Jr. from Straight Outta Compton is uh, kind of the the friend slash love interest character uh, in this and he is quite good as well. You know, it's observations about social media and Instagram fame, you know, may or may not strike you as trite, depending on how you feel about such things. But personally, I think it does a a pretty good job expressing both the appeal and the darkness behind this this aspect of our lives. So, yeah, Ingrid Goes West. It's probably still playing in theaters. Maybe not by the time you hear this, but I'm sure it'll make its way to streaming quite quickly. So, yeah, I caught that one at Sundance and it it was it came very closely after I'd seen uh, the Black Mirror episode Nosedive, Mm. which it bears a lot of resemblance to. But it's so much more loose and fun in a way. And I think that the kind of the message of, you know, what what you see of somebody on social media living their best life is not necessarily reflective of what their actual life is, could be seen as trite. But I also think it's a message that we possibly can't get often enough. And then I think what the film actually ends up doing with it is a lot less cliched and a yeah. lot more interesting. And I really liked the ending. Yeah, I, I absolutely second your recommendation for Ingrid Goes West. Keith, what do you have? You know, I've I said before, I, I shouldn't just recommend the last Criterion I saw. Um, <laughs> and I, I came determined to not do that. But I wanted to recommend the last Criterion I saw. <laughs> it is, in a much darker way, a film like Logan Lucky about how uh, morality kind of ends where the need to provide for your family begins. And it's a film called The Breaking Point from 1950, directed by Michael Curtiz. It's the second adaptation of Ernest Hemingway's To Have and Have Not after To Have and Have Not, directed by Howard Hawks, and starring uh, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. And the thing about that movie is it's really fantastic, and there's so, best I can tell, there's so little of the novel uh, used in it that you can make another movie pretty easily around To Have and Have Not. And this is uh, great. John John Garfield, who would die uh, shortly after this was made, um, plays a a boat captain who uh, likes to take people out for, for fishing and pleasure cruises and find himself kind of forced to do something that's against his scruples uh, when he has no other choice if he wants to provide for his family. And Patricia Neal in it is as a, as a femme fatale, and she is fantastic. And an actress named Phyllis Thaxter, who I know I've seen in things but had never really paid much attention to, is, is almost as good or just as good as Garfield's wife. And, and you know, Curtiz is, was sort of the house director for Warner Brothers at the height of Warner Brothers. And, and, you know, as such, because he's such a part of the studio system, I don't think he often gets the credit he deserves but this movie is a beautifully shot film it is a case of, of someone in perfectly control of what he wants to do uh, handling actors wonderfully it's it was i was expecting it to be good it was much better even than i expected it's hard when your comparison point is one of howard hawks's best films you know it's mm-hmm. kind of tough but this movie is totally its own thing and i highly recommend it the title once again is uh, the breaking point from, 19, from 1950 and it's out now on criterion blu-ray and dvd and possibly on filmstruck at some point but not yet. yeah it'll show up eventually 
actually. Tasha, how about you? Well, speaking of the 1950s and things that aren't on Filmstruck right now, but should be <laughs> and should turn up eventually, and the last Criterion I watched, I can't talk about heist movies without talking about Rafifi uh, from 1955. I suspect that that is a movie that a lot of people who listen to this podcast will have already seen at some point in their lives. If not, I can't recommend it enough. I'm actually going to mention my two favorite heist movies of all time here, which are uh, 1955's Rafifi and 1975's Dog Day Afternoon. They're both just spectacular movies. And I think when you watch Ocean's Eleven and Logan, Logan Lucky back to back as we have, what you see is like crackerjack machine-like heists that pretty much go right. You know, the, the few things happen poorly at various points, but that they're about successful heists. Dog Day Afternoon and Rafifi are both in their own very different ways about heists that go wrong. And the centerpieces of Rafifi is this like half an hour long silent rendition of like the process of a heist that is just, it's a gorgeous piece of filmmaking. It's a gorgeous piece of mechanical heist maneuvering. It's a gorgeous piece of incredibly tense action. But afterwards, the movie slowly starts to unravel. It's a French noir, so you know it's not going to end in a, in a good place. But watching specifically how a band of brothers, uh, you know, in the heist mode get turned against each other by circumstance and how that whole story slowly comes apart is uh, it's just it's a spectacularly written story. Whereas in Dog Day Afternoon, the heist falls apart very early on and it becomes about this big, tense hostage situation. Uh, it's one of Sidney Lumet's best, I think, as it kind of captures the the mood in 1975 New York and like what it's like to be part of the environment there. These films could not be more different in terms of 50s French noir cool versus uh, like rather literally sweaty uh, 70s New York action. But they're both really good heist movies and also just incredibly good kind of character studies and scene dramas. Yeah, there's no, I mean, Rafifi's the gold standard that every heist film since ha has had to uh, reconcile with in some way, shape, or form. That heist sequence still holds together today as just being just a masterpiece of, of, of just, you know, giving you important pieces of visual information, you know, kind of unfolding in a, in a slow, methodical way, uh, which sort of sustains tension over a long period of time and just just that decision to do it with natural sound with everyone trying to be as quiet as they can i mean that is it, it's a big commitment and a, and a difficult choice to make um but the film holds it off totally ripped off mission impossible though <laughs> <laughs> that's right. yeah. 1955 yeah. that's the year that cinema peaked according to me yeah according to you with the dissolve so that was, a, that was that like the night of the hunter and diabolique and that was a hell of a year it was a hell of a year. Well, it gave us Rafifi, mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite heist movies. It did not give us Dog Day Afternoon. That came 20 years <laughs> later. But yeah. that is my other recommendation on your next picture show. Scott, what do you have for us? Well, this week I discovered the, the films of Eliza Hittman, who is a director from Brooklyn. She's done two films, uh, so it didn't take me that long. Uh, <laughs> one was from 2013. It was called It Felt Like Love. And she has a new film called Beach Rats. And both films are about sexually confused teenagers who the way i kind of put it is like it's almost the equivalent of watching somebody drive a car down the wrong just against traffic it's just there's something just so dangerous about the pursuit both of the lives in which they lead it felt like love young know, woman she's a virgin you know but she's trying to imitate her friend and um and she becomes obsessed with this very sleazy dude who, be who sort of turns the tables on her and becomes a, a bit predatory himself and that leads to a very frightening situation and then the new film uh, beach rats has a guy who's living a double life we first see him in a chat room cruising for trying to take an interest in older gentlemen but then he is he's part of this clique of super macho almost like saturday night fever types you know i mean guys who hang out in coney island and are from the working class neighborhood it's very moonlight-esque in that the culture in which he's in utterly forbids his actual desire and so he strikes up a relationship with a woman who is hugely interested in him and he's trying to lead this 
double life and trying to reconcile one side and the other. And those two sides just get set on this collision course that ends uh, in a uh, terrible way. But uh, there's so many wonderful qualities uh, to both of these films, but she's got a great eye. Somebody, I think it was uh, Ignati Vishnovetsky over at the AV Club, referred to Beach Rats as, as Bro Travai. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, 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 has, it, she has a great sense of bodies in motion and just very physical details. I mean, the films are full of sensuality and, you know, a lot of naturalistic b- behavior. She's, she's a great observer of teenage life um, and really has a particularly good sense of peer pressure and, and mirrored behavior and things like that. So uh, I, I recommend both of these films. It felt like love you can see on Fandor and I think maybe Netflix, Netflix or Amazon, one of those two. And then uh, Beach Rats is just coming out, you know, in New York and other places and hopefully We'll get. You know, it's been quite acclaimed, but we'll see if it uh, gains any traction. Yeah, I saw the the trailer for Beach Rats before Ingrid Goes West, so oh. perhaps it will be playing here at the landmark where I saw I saw yeah. it. But um, it, the trailer the whole time watching, I'm like, this looks like moonlight it looks like it, it wants to be moonlight so hearing you confirm that that suspicion but it sounds like it is not nece- it is not an imitator in oh any no way. i mean she's I mean, for one i don't i think she this was probably conceived well before moonlight oh, yeah. and, and she's carrying over sensibility wise she's kind of carrying over from what she's I, i'm more meant that the trailer seemed oh, uh, yeah. seemed cut very much to uh, evoke that but <laughs> when I know that Barry Jenkins and Sean Baker both are doing um, Q&As on opening weekend with Eliza Hitman. They all come from the same sort of, they all kind of share certain aesthetic principles, which I share as well, because uh, those films are all beautiful. Yeah, I'm really excited to check out Beach Rats because you told me I would probably like it. I think so. <laughs> I'm just really stuck on Bro Travai. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's too perfect, and I, yeah. I hate Ignati now. <laughs> I know. Um, Clever bastard. That's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out September 19th and 21st. Keith, you want to tell us what we have lined up? Yeah, sure. For our next episode, we'll be talking about two Stephen King stories originally set in the 1950s. Rob Reiner's Stand By Me, a 1986 adaptation of King's novella The Body, starring River Phoenix, Will Wheaton, Jerry O'Connell, Corey Feldman, and A Dead Body. Then we'll look at It, the first part of a proposed two-part adaptation of King's massive 1986 novel of the same name which from appearances seems to be the heartwarming story of a sleepy small town livened up by the arrival of a fun-loving clown. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's been a while since I've read the book. We'll find out together next episodes. Oh, in the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Steven Soderbergh, heist movies, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Scott? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find my work in such outlets as New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, uh, Vulture, Variety. I'm covering uh, the Toronto Film Festival for Variety and uh, other fine publications. Um, I'm also the editor-in-chief of the Oscilloscope Musings blog. Uh, Genevieve? Uh, you can find my work at Vox.com and the culture section there. And I am on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Keith? You can find me at Uprocks.com where I head up the film and television coverage and on Twitter at KFIPS3000. And Tasha, how about you? You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can find me lately guest starring on uh, Pop Culture Happy Hour, uh, NPR's podcast and one of our favorite places to be. Uh, I've got more episodes coming up and it's so exciting. You can find my writing and editing at TheVerge.com where I am the film and TV editor. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. What are you waiting for? We've been telling you this for nearly 100 episodes now. (laughs) Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important way to get podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance in producing this show, and thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah.